Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 55, and it's a continuation of episode 54. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 55. The two of you, when I think about all the people who who claim to be witnesses to some part of this 48-hour event, from the death of the president to the to the death of Lee Harvey Oswald, the two of the individuals who would have more education, more experience with gun gunshot wounds than anybody else are the two of you, and yet you don't seem to have had enough access to the materials. Does that seem proper to you? Well, um, I know you mentioned to me. Let me give you an example. Okay. You mentioned to me. I think it was assassination. Uh, Review, review board. board, and you went hoping to see, what, x-rays and some other things. Did you get to see them? Well, Dr. McClellan was there, too, yeah. along with Dr. Baxter and Dr. Perry and Dr. Paul Peters. Um, and they said that they were going to bring us some x-rays and some pictures, photos, and see what our opinion was of what had been described in the autopsy and, and what pictures they had there. So we met over at the medical schools, UT Southwestern. They showed up, and they said, well... We couldn't bring any of that material for security reasons. You know, we're 30, 40 years later, and uh, I don't know what the security reasons were. They just didn't bring them for one reason or another. So uh, we haven't seen that, and uh, all we have to go on is the is the Warren report and the pathology uh, report. We don't have evidence of another shooter. Uh, that we can put our hands on. I know you've talked to the, the mute, uh, Mr. Hoffman. I, I've heard his presentation. He claims that he saw somebody from the overpass shoot uh, from the overpass. When Arlen Specter, who came down here six months after the assassination, represented the Warren Commission, was the junior counsel. He was the one that quizzed me. Um, after it was over with, he came out in the hall at Parkland, and he because he was quizzing me about the entrance wound. I, I initially, no question about it, thought it was an entrance wound. He said, I want to tell you, we have people who will testify they saw him shot from the overpass, but we do not believe they're credible witnesses, and I don't want you saying anything about it. Arlen Specter told you that. Yes. Do, do you not think that that's a, a suggestion of how to... Conduct your testimony. <laughs> <laughs> trying, this, trying to be this, as this was after the testimony. I'd already well, told him what I thought, and uh, uh, you know he he quizzed me with such questions as, "Well, Doctor Jones, have you ever seen a uh, individual shot from 265 feet uh, with a missile going X number of uh, miles per hour?" Uh, entering the back on exiting the uh, front of the neck with a uh, uh, 
rifle that he uh, described. Well, you know, that's a specific thing. Probably you haven't. So that tells you, no, I really haven't. But between a lot of gunshot wounds, for instance, I reviewed the literature. I reviewed our experience the next year at Parkland. We saw 1,200 plus gunshot wounds, 515 of which were admitted to the hospital. So we were seeing three gunshot wounds a day on average. So we saw a lot of gunshot wounds. Dr. McClellan, and I guess this is for you too, Dr. Jones, had you ever seen uh, damage to a body from a gunshot wound like you saw that day? Um, well, I've seen some pretty bad damage yeah. done, yes. In fact, even worse than that. But um, I have to defer to Dr. Jones. Uh, he's much more expert uh, in uh, seeing and managing gunshot wounds than I am. Although all of us at Parkland saw quite a bit of that, but Dr. Jones, I think, was our expert, if you will, uh, then and still is. Well, we've seen, you know, most of the gunshot wounds that we see are pistols. Yeah. Now you're seeing AK-45s and all types of rapid fire. But back then we were seeing 22s, 32s, 38, 45 caliber pistols and uh, shotgun injuries occasional rifle injuries. And a rifle injury, you get a rifle injury to the arm, it just literally destroys it, the bone, the soft tissue, and everything. So it does massive destruction. Occasionally, we saw some small caliber missiles. I remember one of the state fair uh, shot right here and came out there, and the kid, slow recovery, but he made a, a recovery and, and came back to full function. So, But not with a, with a rifle like that that you hit the brain. What, there had, one of your colleagues, um, Dr. Charles Crenshaw, who, who's no longer with us, have, uh, wrote a book uh, about uh, his experiences with regard to the assassination. Uh, a, your, 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 your thoughts about the book, and also he mentioned uh, a rather unusual phone call that he got, a suggestion of how he should uh, conduct his testimony from there on out. Any of you ever got a strange phone call? Go ahead. Doctor sitting right there in front of me, I think, has some knowledge of that, don't you? Yeah. So I think that phone call, which came from the White House, apparently uh, did come through. Talk, talk to us a little bit, if you can, about what you know of that phone call. All I know is circumstantial. I know nothing okay. directly but what I was told. And what I was told, and again by my good friend sitting here in front of me uh, who was sitting there in the nurse's station listening to the phone uh, that someone called from the White House as uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was on the table wanting to find out what condition he was in. That's all just hearsay really for me, but I think that's probably uh, did occur. Okay. Uh, anybody ever tried to coach your testimony in either way, your, your memory, trying to change your memory, your, the facts you wrote down? Because uh, right after this happened, you were, I believe you were both asked by the Secret Service to write out what occurred, right, which you right. did. That's anybody right. ever ask you to, to alter that in any way, any form, any fashion? No. 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 It was stamped. What was interesting, we wrote it out and hand scribbled it out mm -hmm. on a piece of paper, and then years later... I saw it stamped top secret, and uh, it had been <laughs> in the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission did over 25,000 interviews and had over 25,000 pages 
there was 25,000 just from the FBI, and there was another 4,600 uh, pages uh, produced from the uh, Secret Service. So they had 30,000 pages of information. Nobody's able to go through all of that uh, information. Most of the interviews were done outside. I think there were only 90-some-odd people that actually appeared before the, the Warren Commission. How do they treat the two of you? The Warren Commission. Uh, well, they interviewed me at Parkland in the administrator's office. And in fact, I was interviewed by uh, Arlen Specter, who was at that time just a junior lawyer. We were both the same age. And we had a very nice interview there. And I told him what uh, my impressions were at that time. And he wrote them down. And it's interesting, too, that that written report that they had us do right after we came upstairs from having attended the president. Uh, if you get the New York Times condensed version of the Warren report, uh, those written reports are reproduced in there. My written report is just in my handwriting is in that. So there's nothing secret about that. Dr. Yeah. Jones, you feel that uh, the Warren Commission got your fair and complete and uh, accurate information about what you saw the day of the assassination? Yeah, I think they questioned what a lot about what we thought was the, what I thought was the entrance wound and tried to convince me that it was an exit wound and uh, said that if a bullet does not fragment, does not tumble, does not strike bone, that the exit wound can be the same size as the entrance wound. Uh, the pristine bullet really was not pristine. It was pristine in the nose, but uh, the back of the cartridge was, was damaged, and so it was not pristine. Okay. Uh, Dr. Uh, McClellan, I know that you have uh, smiled when asked whether or not you supported the magic bullet theory. No, I don't, really. And there's a lot of questions, not yeah. just from me, but from many people, about that. Ex so, can you explain the, your concerns about it? Well, I think to think that a bullet made all of those turns... Uh, going through uh, the president and then out, you know, and then going into uh, Governor Connolly and through his chest and out into his arm and then into his thigh. Uh, that's a pretty uh, athletic kind of bullet, I think, to, uh, you know, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Doc, Dr. Jones? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that the Warren Commission, Arlen Specter is the one that came up with the single yeah. bullet theory, the magic bullet theory, uh, is that that bullet goes in here, out here, tumbles, and because it's tumbling and perhaps the side of the missile or the back side of the missile hits the rib cage here, then it causes this massive sucking chest wound in his chest just below the nipple line, fifth rib, and comes on down still tumbling, fractures his wrist, and then a fragment goes into the thigh. Now, Connolly is in the limo with a suit on. He's taken off the, out of the limo, put on a stretcher, brought into trauma room two. Clothes are taken off and a gown's put on. Sheets are put on him. He's taken on the stretcher up to the operating room, moved to the OR table. Sheets are taken off, folded. The table comes back down to the ER and somebody finds a missile on the table. And, mm -hmm. and nobody saw that and had that. Well, it either had to be in his clothes that fell off or it had to just be hanging in the skin and fell off. But nobody saw that during that entire transport or examination. Um, that's, that's difficult to believe. I'm not saying it can't happen, but that's uh, part of the 
magic bullet theory. It was also found on a stretcher that was completely pristine with its sheath. There were no blood or anything on it, just this bullet lying there with no blood stains or anything. What do you, you know, let me see what we have up here. Uh, th this is a picture right yeah. now that you're taking a look at, I believe. That's the Assassination Review Board. That's the Assassination Review Board that you, that you heard uh, uh, Dr. Jones talk about earlier. This is uh, when you arrived hoping to see uh, some x-rays, perhaps some other photographic information, uh, some other photographs that might uh, help to elucidate your, help your memory with regard to uh, what you saw that day. Didn't see anything. Because it was... I don't believe we were given anything. Hmm. Uh, we were asked some questions, and they took that testimony, but I uh, don't think we saw anything. Hmm. It's probably that they brought. Were, were you ev have you ever been able to see any of the photographs, anything like that? Did you go to Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Mm -hmm. they, we saw nothing there anymore. In fact, it was really, really strange, kind of dramatic. Um, we went to the National Archives, um, and you, you went. I there. didn't go. I you don't, didn't, I, I didn't, well, the Boston Globe know. called me and I thought it was sort of a put up that they yeah. were doing. In retrospect, uh, wish I'd gone, but, uh, yeah. didn't. Well, they took five of us went up yeah. there, as I recall. And each one of us, individually, we stood out in the anteroom uh, at the entrance of the National Archives, the five of us. And then they called us each separately. And we were, very dramatic. It was kind of ridiculous, really. Uh, each one of us were, as we were called to come back to the room where we were to look at this material, um, a um, soldier in uniform carrying a rifle uh, over his arm escorted us, marched us, you know, with a rifle next to us, and uh, people were standing around staring, you know, at what was this going on, and took us down to the room uh, and then took us into another little ante room, and we waited there for a minute, and then they called us inside this other room, and there was a man sitting uh, behind a desk on a dais, kind of like this. And we were asked then to come up on the dais and sit down, and he showed us some pictures, handed us some 8 by 10 glossies of the postmortem, and said, is this what it looked like when you saw this um, at, uh, in Dallas? And I think each of us, as we compared notes later, the five of us who went through that, said, yes, that's what we saw. Thank you, they said. And that was, uh, that was it. And we flew back home uh, to Dallas. So that was uh, kind of odd, but it was really overdramatically uh, done, I think. <laughs> let, let me, uh, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, Dr. Jones, in the in trauma room one, if I remember correctly, you were the person who had to cut some of President Kennedy's clothes away uh, in order to, to to begin to begin his treatment. Uh, you came across in, in in removing some of his clothing. You came across an ace bandage, uh, you which was uh, used to hold in place, I believe, a, a back brace. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, what, what's what's some of the I'm just curious about what some of the treatment that, that took place with regard to the, the president when he first came in. You mentioned a cut down, uh, and those of us who are not in medicine, perhaps you could. Well, a cut down is, a, is a, making an incision somewhere to isolate a vein and make an incision in that vein and put a catheter in it 
and secure it and then connect that to an IV okay. catheter and the bottle is hanging. So that's what a, a cut down is. Um, the ACE bandage was wrapped around the abdomen and down the thigh to hold the back brace in. Now, what I thought you were going to get into was medication that might have been given. And when we started the cut down, Dr. Carrico had remembered that perhaps Dr. that President Kennedy had um, Addison's disease, which was a deficiency in the adrenal gland and might have been on steroids or had been on steroids in the past. And when that happens and you have a traumatic insult, uh, your adrenal gland may not function properly and you can eventually die from that. So he gave him 300 milligrams of hydrocortisone IV. That was one of the questions Arlen Spector asked me. He said, you gave him 300 milligrams of hydrocortisone. Did you ask his doctor? Did you ask Ms. Kennedy if, if he had Addison's disease? No. So you just administered it without any information except what you had read in a newspaper or a magazine, which was what Dr. Carrico had done. He said, what if you had given too much? What if you had, what would happen if you'd given too much? And I said, nothing would have happened. Uh, it wouldn't have made any difference. If he needed it, he would, could have utilized it. If he didn't, it would have been all right. But that was the kind of questioning I got. Some pretty strict questions. Mm -hmm. More questions from the audience. Uh, did either of you witness the removal of President Kennedy's body from Parkland? And what were your recollections of that? I did not. I know the issue about him being moved and Dr. Earl Rowe, who, Rose, who was the, the forensic pathologist, wanted to do the autopsy in Dallas because the rule was if you were shot in Dallas and killed, you were autopsied in Dallas County. And the Secret Service and FBI said, get out of the way, and took him, uh, despite what Dr. Rose was saying, and took him out. I did not see him removed, and according to the autopsy people, they said he was not placed in a bag, although we've heard that he was placed in a bag, but I, I didn't see it. I, I understand that one of the two of you was in the room, you'd been, they, they, had, they had pushed the, the, the cart to the side, you were kind of against the wall in between the cart, and Mrs. Kennedy came in. I, I think I read that somewhere. Is that, that, that correct? Can you can recall that story? Yeah, you? that was uh, Dr. Baxter and I were still in the room uh, as the after the president was pronounced dead. And that crowded room, when the president was pronounced dead, uh, emptied rapidly. And in doing that, the cart the president was lying on uh, was pushed over against the wall and the, where Dr. Baxter and I happened to be standing at that time, and as the crowd pushed out and pushed the cart against the wall, we were trapped between the cart and the wall, so we had to just stand there as the rest of the people left. And then after the entire room emptied, uh, we began to push the cart away so we could walk around the head of it and leave trauma room one ourselves. But before we could do that, uh, the door to trauma room one came open and a priest came in. And in order to get out of the room, we would have had to kind of push him out of the way. So again, Dr. Baxter and I simply froze against the wall and found ourselves in a position inappropriately where we had to observe the president's last rites. So the, the priest came over, Father Huber, we found out was his name later, and he came over... Um, and I remember the first thing he said 
uh, in administering the last rites, he said, if thou livest, down close to the president's left ear, and then I couldn't hear him say anything else. And he completed that uh, briefly and was getting ready to leave himself uh, when the door came open again to trauma room one and Mrs. Kennedy came in. And she came over directly across from where Dr. Baxter and I were standing and next to Father Huber, and she spoke in such a soft voice that I couldn't hear what she said, but from the context of Father Huber's answer, I knew that she had asked Father Huber if he had received last rites. And so Father Huber said to her clearly, and I heard him say this, he said, yes, I've given him conditional absolution. And so Mrs. Kennedy grimaced when she heard that, that word conditional. I mean, she didn't say anything. She stood there. She was very self-contained, uh, stood there for a moment, and exchanged a ring from her finger to the president's finger and a ring from his finger to her finger and stood there for another moment and then slowly walked down to the end of the gurney, the cart the president was lying on, and his right bare right foot was sticking out from underneath the sheet, and she leaned over and kissed his right foot and then walked out of trauma room one, and that's the last we saw of her, and then Dr. Baxter and I left. So that was the final thing that went on in trauma room one. There's a question from the audience. Uh, thank you. There's a question from the audience uh, for Dr. McClellan. I believe the doctor's statement that the throat wound was an entry wound, but where did this bullet go? I'll defer to you on that, Dr. Jones. Well, um, initially we thought it was an entrance wound because we did not know he had been okay. shot in the back, but when we found out he'd been shot in the back, then it could be, and if he was going to shot from the back that this could be an exit wound. Remember when when they looked upstairs in the sixth floor depository, they found three ca uh, cartridges up there. Uh, so it, there are at least three shots fired from the sixth floor. So we know two of them. Uh, at least he was shot twice, and there were three cartridges found. So that came from the sixth floor. The rifle was found on the sixth floor. The wrapping that the rifle was brought in was found on the sixth floor. Uh, I, want, I want to make sure I get through as many of these as I can. Now, there's a question here, it, and I don't know if either of you can answer this. Is it true that all of the Trauma Room 1 walls uh, are in storage in Kansas City per the Kennedy's request? I don't know if it's the Kennedy's request, but I understand they're in stored in Kansas City. Well, that's my understanding, too, that they're in storage. Or the, I think I saw some story that said that they'd been destroyed, actually, but uh, that they're no longer at Parkland. They're no longer at Parkland, and I don't think they're open to the public. I did not know that they'd been destroyed. You, do the two of you have some concerns about this being 50 years and there still being so much secrecy with regard to um, so much evidence, uh, so much material in this assassination? Do you have some concern about that? Well, I have concern, for instance, that House Special Select uh, Committee that uh, concluded that there probably was a conspiracy, and yet they haven't released the information leading to that conclusion until 2029. Why is that? I don't understand that. I'm just concerned it's been 50 years and I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
this one, for, pardon me, one for both of you. Has your affiliation with the Kennedy assassination been a godsend or a curse in your life? And also, has it made you a better physician? I don't think it's had any particular effect one way or the other in that regard. I'm not saying I discount the importance of it. I'm just saying that that was what I do, uh, what I did that day. That was what I was trained to do and what I did the best way I could, as did all of us. And I don't think that, I mean, it sounds like, oh, this is some great dramatic event, which it certainly was. I'm not discounting that at all. But um, it didn't really affect my own personal life or its outcome. And I think that's true probably of, of all of us. Yeah. It hadn't really affected people. The only way it's affected us is having been there in that presence and people wanting more information and, and just want to hear that one more time. Everybody's interested in hearing that story that you're able to tell them. Here's an interesting, sorry for my voice, an interesting question. In comparison to the wound of President Lincoln, uh, I, I realize you weren't there. <laughs> what would you think about that? President Kennedy's um, injuries were clearly not survivable. I think the, the, the questioner has, wants to know, why is it that President Lincoln was able to linger for some period of time and not President yeah. Kennedy? Well, he was shot with a small pistol, as I recall, yeah. and it was a smaller hole and they kept probing it mm -hmm. and uh, he kept bleeding but uh it was a it was a different caliber he did, was not shot with a with a high powered rifle uh, you i've got some questions here that also have to do with uh, lee harvey oswald and um, this question is directed to both of you if the bullet fired by ruby traveled front to back instead of left to right, could Oswald's life have been saved so he would have gone to trial? I think that's uh, quite true. That he unfortunately, as probably any of us would, when he saw someone coming at him with a pistol, tried to avoid being shot. So he turned and presented his left side to the weapon, and instead of going from front to back, which it might have if, say, he hadn't seen the pistol, uh, very likely could have caused uh, significant injuries, but not fatal injuries. But as it was, when he turned, the bullet went in on the left side and went across the back of his abdomen and injured both of the two main blood vessels in the body, the vena cava and the aorta. And usually you bleed out immediately when that occurs, but as luck would have it, he didn't. Um, and even that might have been uh, salvageable, but usually not. So what happened to him and the way he moved uh, cost him his life, I think. And yeah, we were able, though, to get down to the wound almost. Uh, Dr. Shires was doing the operating. Dr. Jones and I were helping. And uh, Dr. Perry was, was there also. And just as we got down, just as Dr. Shires got down near where he might get clamps on those two major injuries, then Oswald, who had suffered a great deal of shock, and his heart had been injured, he arrested, and Dr. Perry and I dropped out of surgery, opened his chest, and massaged his heart for some time, 
and initially we thought cardiac activity would come back, but then finally it got flabbier and flabbier until it was apparent the heart would not recover. I, re I so reviewed our patients there. that had yeah. had a combined aorta and vena cava injury, went back as far as I can find the records after that. We had never saved a patient right. that had that combined injury. And even today, I've seen, didn't operate on it, I've seen two at Baylor in the last year, and I, one of them lived many, many days, but they ultimately died. He had, in addition to that, he had the diaphragm, the lung, the liver, the pancreas um, injury, and the right kidney. So he had all those injuries in addition to those major vessel All, all from one bullet, because I, I, yeah. I, I heard you say a heart injury. I, I thought I thought no, that I heard that. No, no. The injury the, from the shock. The, oh, yeah, a shock not, injury. Not okay, a bullet shock injury. In the heart, no. Okay. So, but but all that all that injury that you talk about from from one bullet. Yeah, and going across the back part of the abdomen like that. So sort of what you do with a what we call a shish kebab, uh, he just got everything. Mm -hmm. What was it? Interesting. Was it difficult for you understanding <laughs> what had happened at the beginning of this forty-eight hour period? with the death of President Kennedy, was it difficult for you to now work on his accused assassin? That's a question that comes up a lot. And you see this in prisoners um, shot. Um, the thing you have to remember is that within 48 hours, he's accused, but he's not convicted. He might not have been the one. Remember, they arrested him in Oak Cliff, and he was suspected as being the accused assassin, and he was charged, but he had not been convicted. So, you know, you, you, you don't know what the outcome's going to be. So you really can't take that in consideration. This comes from somebody who clearly uh, is up to date on the assassination. Why are the House Select Committee exhibits, uh, why is House Select Committee exhibit F66 not reflective of your view of brain injury? I don't know. Not, I'm not quite sure I understand that. Uh, yeah, it might be. Per, perhaps the, uh, the, the questioner, because I'm not familiar with Exhibit F66, and perhaps we'll give them an opportunity. There you go, right there. Why is that? Okay, so the question is, why is that not reflective of, uh, of, of your conclusions? In other words, that shot front to back, uh, that's look. That's higher than the one that you've talked about, Doctor McClellan. Yeah. Why is, is yeah. that not reflective yeah. of? Yeah. It, it's it doesn't too high. The, the wound I saw was much lower in the back of the head than than that. <clears throat> and I looked into that wound yeah. for some period of time, you know, for from a distance of sixteen or eighteen inches. You're both asked to talk a little bit about the the roles of doctors uh, Kemp Clark and. Uh, can't read the book. Dr. Grossman? No, Dr. Grossman, uh, now this is Ford. Ford? I didn't think, I thought you I had the world's worst handwriting. Well, the fascinating thing is, it comes from a doctor. Uh, well, Kim, but if you can talk about Kim Clark. Kim Clark was chief of neurosurgery, and uh, Dr. Williams trained under him. Um, he came into the ER, uh, trauma room one, a little later, and but did go up to the head of the table and looked at the wound. And when we just talked about um, opening the chest, because closed chest massage had just been described as to 
very short time before this and um, was not as common as opening the chest and doing a cardiac massage. So we just questioned that. Would it be worth it? And he was looking at the wound and gave us the signal, don't do that. Um, so he was chief of neurosurgery. He's the one who made the official pronouncement of death and signed the death certificate, as I recall. And I don't know who Ford, if that's what... Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll work on that a little bit more. It looks like Looks like four. Uh, here's a qu- here's a question I'm always curious about. What are the discrepancies between? Well, well, let me let me back up. While the two of you may have some uh, disagreement about the, the the wounds that you saw, is it fair to say that you both believe a better autopsy could have been done in Bethesda to the president for the president of the United States? A better or better better records done of that. Here. Uh, I'm talking about in Bethesda. Could, could, could better work have finally been done with regard to that? Better records have been kept. Because I keep hearing, uh, reading reports that there's yeah. some concern about what, what was arrived at there as opposed to what you actually saw. Based upon what I'm seeing from people here, folks trust you. They trust the two of you. I'm not well, so sure that uh, that's a shared they opinion. They have some disadvantage by not being able to see this neck wound because of incision had been, a cut had been made through that, so they didn't appreciate that. Uh, they did find the one in the back that we didn't uh, find, and um, they could have been perhaps examined the organs a little more closely. People have talked about the adrenal gland. Did he have Addison's disease? But the, the major injuries they described uh, appropriately. They had a lot of measurements. Um, you know, they described this wound uh, in a recent AM, well, it's not too recent now, but in an AMA article, Commander Hume said that when he made the incision, and that's what you do in an autopsy to look at the brain, you, you pull a, make an incision, pull the skin forward, that the skull actually fell out in his hands. And when I, when I first saw the president, when you looked at him, I thought he didn't look right on the table when I first saw him. His face looked relaxed. It just didn't, it wasn't full like it ought to be. And I think it was the brain, all the skull fracture that, that caused the skin to relax. But I, I don't know that there was much more that they would have found by uh, further examination. Do you? No. I don't think it would have made any difference. Let, let me ask you about the final question. The people who aren't born yet, not with us today uh, yet, what's the legacy that you want to leave to them with regard to your memories of what happened? What, what, how do you want your memories to be uh, to those individuals in the future? Well, I think you'd describe what you saw, and I think what you'd like to do is tell them what your participation in it was. We can theorize a lot, and we can. That's okay, but I think the bottom line is: what did you really do? Mm-hmm. What was the procedures that you performed on this individual, and what did you do with with Oswald? That you you know you participated. I agree with that. I think all we can say is what we did and what we saw. And if we get off into theorizing about different things, I guess anyone could do that. But we're no better qualified to do that than anybody else, or maybe not as qualified as some people. So all we can do is say what we did and what we saw on those two days. That's the limited 
And I hope people will think that maybe we functioned reasonably well under the circumstances. Let's give our guests a round of applause. Thank you for listening to episode 55 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.